This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good afternoon. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at Rand. Today we are speaking about the models being used to predict COVID 19 cases and deaths, how these models work, how they differ, and what their limitations are. We have a senior economist, Ginny Ringel, from our Santa Monica office. She's also director of RAND's Access and Delivery Program. Actually, good morning to you, Jeannie, on the West Coast. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, we also have a mathematician and expert in epidemic models, Raf Vardavas, also from the Santa Monica office. Hi, Raf. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, and Carter Price uh, here on the East Coast, based in our Washington office, a senior mathematician who has worked on models covering everything from healthcare reform to terrorism risk. Hi, Carter. Morning. Hi there. This is our seventh call with the experts regarding the pandemic, and we've got more lined up. Today, we're going to talk about the array of COVID-19 models out there, including RAND's own model, uh, which has some unique characteristics. Carter, let me start with you. Why is there not one model that can give us everything we need to know about COVID-19? Well, part of it has to do with the fact that that uh, we don't know a lot, or at least we didn't know a lot about the disease, you know, three three months ago, uh, and we're starting to learn more. Uh, another aspect of it gets to, you know, what questions are you trying to answer? And so uh, different models, you know, for different policy questions, you'll need a different model. And so some of the models can answer multiple policy questions, but some of them, some specific policy questions will need a, a very unique model. And so that's why there's a plethora of models and, and uh, it takes a lot of work to figure out which one's appropriate for your specific, uh, for anyone's specific questions. Does this have to do more with the objective of the model or more about the inputs or the math behind the model or is it all of the above? Definitely a little of both. The, the model objectives should match the model design. And so, you know, if you're trying to answer a specific type of question, your model should be designed to answer that type of question. And that's not always, unfortunately, not always the case with some of the models that we've seen. Um, but, you know, your model should be suitable to address the question that you're trying to, to answer with it. Are there just a handful of different, from a scientific standpoint, different types of models? There are two broad classes of models. You can think about statistical models that would rely on fitting curves to past data and then using assumptions uh, from those those fitted curves about what might happen in other places. So given that this was the trajectory in these other places, we would expect the trajectory here to be similar, and that's why we make this projection. Uh, so that's sort of a statistic, how a statistical model might work. Uh, another class of models would, might be sort of a theory-based or a systems dynamics model that tries to capture how the system evolves with time based on theory. And, and uh, for those models, you'll, you'll boil it down to a couple of parameters and make some assumptions about if this happens, then this should happen. And then based on that, you'll make predictions. Okay. Uh, let's talk about how they work and whether they work. Uh, Raf, do we have to wait until after the fact to tell how accurate a model is? 
Uh, no, I don't think we uh, we can actually look after a few weeks to see uh, how those uh, projections performed. I say a few weeks because, uh, of course, there's a lagged effect in terms of modeling any interventions and then seeing in the data how those played out because there's about two weeks uh, lag in terms of seeing those interventions play out in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. However, having said that, early models can suffer from uh, big uncertainties in the uh, parameter estimates. We wrote a blog, I think a month or so, uh, or so ago, on the case fatality rate. And uh, these case fatality rates can be used and to estimate exactly the, the probability of uh, death. And um, these estimates can be quite wrong early on in the uh, epidemic. There's the case for SARS, where during the epidemic, uh, I think it was estimated to be about 4%, and then it turned out to be adjusted to 10%. I'm not saying that that's the case for COVID, but it just gives an example. Uh, speaking about the the beginning of an epidemic, uh, we already have a model uh, just just now that came out yesterday from Columbia University that was estimating was looking back, not as much a forward looking, but looking back to see how uh, how many fewer Americans might have died from the pandemic if social distancing measures had been imposed a week earlier. Answer: thirty six thousand, according to their model. Does that type of looking back is that fair? Uh, I think, yes, that that is certainly an activity that needs to be done. Uh, um, I'm not sure. Maybe it's a little soon to do, but uh, definitely we should learn from what has happened and, and what would have been the cases and what have been the, the range of different what-ifs uh, scenarios, well, as we're doing right now in terms of projecting forward, but we should also look at different state stages back in time. Or how could the things played out differently? Carter? Yeah, I agree with uh, with what. What Raf said, and to his earlier point about, uh, you know, we're still learning about the disease dynamics and how it actually works, and so you know that we can think of that as an initial estimate, and then uh, that methodology can be applied later on. But as we get more data and as we get more information about how the model works, and so that that should be thought of as sort of an initial estimate, and th that number will probably refine. It, it might go up, it might go down, depending on what we learn based on, on the, how the disease operates. But it's a useful exercise to get, to get that kind of information early on to help people think through the health implications of policy choices. And, and that's always useful to, to really ground, to, to highlight the importance of these types of decisions. Got it. There's another model that has certainly been in the news quite a bit, which is uh, the University of Washington model, which uh, had earlier predicted 70,000 American deaths by August 1st. But actually, that number was passed weeks ago. Uh, what, what went wrong with that one? Perhaps, Carter, you could take that. Yeah, so I think there were a, a few problems with that model. I mean, I think it, there were technical flaws with the model uh, that, that led it to, to have some biased results. Uh, there were also some errors in the policy analysis, and uh, they were making recommendations, for example, about when to relax social distancing policies. You know, if you have one case per one million people per day, that that would mm -hmm. be an appropriate time to to relax the physical distancing policies. However, uh, that model was not appropriate. It was not sufficiently accurate to make estimates about when that might occur. And so they were making uh, recommendations using their model for things that their model couldn't estimate. And that's something that researchers need to be careful about uh, overstating what their models can do. And policymakers need to be wary of uh, when looking at this. And the media, when they're covering these things, they need to ask around and make sure that other experts agree that this model is appropriate. 
You mentioned a particular rule of thumb, one case, one new case per million people per day. Has that rule of thumb, uh, obviously it didn't work here, has some alternative rule of thumb been uh, widely adopted? There are lots of rules of thumb. There's there's one that uh, the administration has suggested involving two uh, consecutive weeks of uh, falling case rates, and that's you know, another useful way that's somewhat grounded analysis. Again, that's not the rule of thumb that I would go with just because it's based not on, it's based on declining cases, not on the level of cases. So, you know, just because you have a small decline over two weeks, if you still have a lot of new cases out there, you're still, when you open things up, you're going to get a lot of spread. And so there might be better ways of of thinking about that, but it's at least grounded in some analysis. How do we choose a certain type of model? In other words, what, how have we uh, come to have the types of models we have had so far during this pandemic? Has it all been driven by the, the urgency of the pandemic? What's doing that, Carter, perhaps? Yeah, some of the models are easier to roll out than others, and some models rely on, on either more or different data. And so the, a lot of the models being used now, particularly the best models being used now, in my opinion, would be the uh, system dynamics models that, that are using a variant of the susceptible infected uh, recovered uh, structure. And that, that class of model is very useful for policy analysis because you have a couple of parameters and those parameters translate into the mechanisms by which policy would intervene. And so policy would intervene by reducing uh, the interactions that people have, which reduces the rate of spread. And so that's a, a model that's very well suited. That's a model structure that is very well suited for policy analysis at this stage. There are other policies that that type of model is not well suited for. Uh, however, we're not at that point yet. And we hopefully will be there soon. And so we'll need other classes of models to, to assess uh, those policy interventions. Have we managed to avoid the worst case scenario in the U.S., are we moving? Are we, are we moving to a different kind of phase now that's going to require different kinds of models? It certainly seems so. We have not reached the level of spread and the, the level of deaths that uh, the models indicated may have happened. We certainly didn't have an optimal outcome, but we're far from as bad as it could have been. And now that a lot of places are, uh, whether supported by the epidemiology or via policy, we are changing policies and we are starting to relax the physical distancing approaches. And because of that, we'll need a new set of models to explore the implications of that and to explore what policies might work best uh, in this new environment. That might be a good point at which to turn to Jeannie. Uh, uh, We have a new model at RAND. Uh, Could you describe how it's different from the others and, and maybe how it could be well positioned for this next phase of the pandemic. Sure, I'd be happy to. So at RAND, we've developed a decision support tool for state policymakers. And what this tool does is combines information from an epidemiological model, an economic model, and a qualitative policy analysis to assess the effects of different combinations of social distancing policies, like closing schools, closing businesses, and stay-at-home orders. And as we've already talked about, there are a lot of different models out there, but ours is unique in a couple of ways that I'd like to highlight. First, we focus in on a very specific 
a set of uh, social distancing portfolios and allow the user to choose between different levels of intervention. Most of the models out there that we've seen um, really focus on sort of social distancing as a one lump sum set of policies and really model the effect of reducing uh, restrictions by just limiting the number of, uh, saying, reducing contacts by X percent. We use a more sophisticated method of modeling the effect of those social distancing policies, really looking at differences in where people mix and changing, um, changing sort of this mixing matrix uh, of how people interact uh, in normal time versus under these different social distancing restrictions. So that's one thing that I think is really different. It gives a more nuanced analysis of the different social distancing policies. Right. It also allows us uh, in our tool, we allow the user to um, select not only that level of the social distancing, whether we're having sort of loose restrictions or stricter restrictions in place, but also the timing so that they can really look at the effect of um, keeping restrictions in place longer, removing them sooner, and so forth. And so you can sort of play around with and see the changing effects. And then the final thing I really want to highlight that's very different uh, about our tool is that we've combined this epidemiological model that's really focused on the health outcomes along with an economic model that's all, that looks at the impacts of those same social distancing policies on economic outcomes. And so putting those things together in one tool where you're estimating them based on the same sort of assumptions about what the, the social distancing policies are and how long they'll be in effect allows you to really sort of consider the, a, a wider range of impacts associated with those policies and potentially thinking through the, the trade-offs between them. And, and it's, it's state by state. Uh, what, what drove that decision to, to do it that way as opposed to a national overview? Sure. Well, we thought that, you know, most of this, uh, the decision making was really going to be happening at the, the state and local level. And so wanted to build a model that would be useful and really understand and take into account some of the different things that are unique about different states, whether it's their population density or their age distribution or, you know, what exactly is going on with the pandemic in that state at that time. And so it provides more granular information for people at the state level. We also wanted to go down even further and really look at it at a local level to uh, and be able to provide even more nuanced and granular information. But unfortunately, the data are really not consistently available at that sort of lower level of aggregation at the county or city level in order to feed into the epidemiological model. And so we really felt like then um, the state was the best level for us to focus on. Can you draw national conclusions from our model, our tool? Yeah, I think definitely you can, um, you know, sort of aggregating up from the state level. But I think what you see across all of the states is a, a fairly similar sort of overarching pattern while the levels and the timing may be different. A lot of the sort of, I think, high level uh, findings probably are applicable at both a higher level at the national level, but also at the more local level. And that would be that, you know, as you relax restrictions and allow more people to uh, interact and get out there, and um, we would expect the model projects to see, you know, cases increasing and um, allowing 
uh, and and deaths to increase and so forth. And so I think, you know, just keeping restrictions in place even a few weeks longer, you can sort of push out and potentially reduce the size of that that increase. But doing so has, you know, some negative impact on the on the community. And it somewhat sort of pushes the pro the problem just further into the future. So whenever we relax restrictions, if there are still uh, the virus is circulating, there's a lot of the population that's still susceptible. And so we might expect to see these bigger increases. But there are a bigger lot of bigger increases sooner, I suppose. Bigger increases, yes. Well, once you once you start to relax those restrictions. But I think, you know, what's really important to highlight here is that, you know, with the restrictions in place, we need to be, you know, and people have been making good use of that time in order to develop ways to interact more safely, whether that's at an individual level by wearing masks or sort of changing your behavior about how often you go to the store. So that even though the restrictions may be relaxed and it may be okay for me to, you know, go to the mall, I may choose not to do that. At the same time, businesses have been preparing, right? They've been figuring out ways to reopen their spaces in ways where we can interact more safely. So, you know, whether that's the sneeze guard at the um, grocery store checkout line or different procedures for sanitizing and disinfecting things at the barbershop between customers or whatever that may be, all of those things are taking place during this time while the restrictions are in place. Our model doesn't fully capture all of those kinds of changes just yet because we haven't really observed them, right? And so they're not in the data. And so we're not able to, to fully capture that. What we currently do is model what we call a new normal. You know, after the restrictions are relaxed, uh, we go back to sort of a level of activity and social interaction that is not the same as the pre-pandemic level. We've made changes, and um, but we don't know exactly what that level will be going forward for people. And the way we model it right now is basically an average between sort of the interaction and level of activity we would see under the restriction and, you know, what would have been um, before the pandemic. And so it's really sort of like a step down uh, in activity. But I think as we get more information and more data about the way people are behaving and what impacts that has, we're going to be better able to model that and project what we expect to see in terms of increases in cases. And it may not be as bad as what the projections look like right now because, you know, we just haven't been able to incorporate those behavior changes yet. I have surfed the tool and played with the slider bar and looked at about 10 different states. And uh, what I'm seeing is under a variety of scenarios in most of those states, things are going to get worse late, late in the summer. Is that a fair conclusion to draw? And in fact, our models don't go beyond September 1st. And, and in a number of the states, they show things heading upward at the point at which our model stops. Two questions. One is, are my conclusions uh, roughly right? And the second is, will we keep updating this so that we will see beyond September 1st before long? Yeah, let me start with the second question. So yes, we're going to keep updating the model and incorporating new data. In fact, we bring in new data every day and we rerun the model every couple of days to generate new information. Um, and then we're going to keep working on incorporating improvements into the model as, as new information is available and, and we learn more. So definitely that's going to be updated. And then as time passes, we are going to extend the period at which we're projecting 
Um, but the further out you get, you know, sort of the more uncertain things get. And so it's hard to project sort of beyond um, a few months out with any kind of, um, you know, realism and, and, and precision. And you'll see if you take a look at the tool, right, the error bands around the projections get very wide the further out you get. And that just reflects that growing uncertainty the further away we get from the existing data that, that we have. Raf, are there some additional elements that we are or will be incorporating into the model? Uh, yes. Uh, so, so one of them is uh, seasonality. So, indeed, uh, the model is uh, projecting that things are going to get worse if you open up uh, uh, in this way. But of course, we don't really know about uh, the effects of seasonality. We can assume, and the model at the moment assumes no seasonality effects, but we can also range that and, and assume that there might be some seasonality effects, like for the case of influenza. We might want to consider uh, new features such as uh, the loss of immunity and uh, what would the dyna dynamics look like depending on the duration of people who have been infected, and, and exactly as uh, Jeannie has uh, uh, mentioned, uh, the, the, the level of mixing might indeed be quite reduced and uh, just spontaneously, and of course there's a fact of uh, mask wearing. But we could also add in, um, rather than uh, we informing the way that people might behave, we could put statistical models within the, uh, the transmission model to describe endogenously, meaning inbuilt uh, into the model of how uh, people might adapt to the ca new case fatalities or uh, case counts. And, and so that uh, it's, it's within the model that it makes those projections. So these are some features that we are, uh, we are thinking. Not another, uh, well, one limitation of, of uh, our model, I'm, I'm not sure about the other limit of other models is the moment we are exactly, we're considering all these, the different states, but we're not considering the uh, migrational traveling patterns between the states. I think uh, the, the, the mixing between the states is important at the beginning of the epidemic and, and at the end, not so much right now. Uh, so it's it's fair to, to have excluded this at this stage, but this is going to become a, uh, an important factor later on. And also depends on the level of geographical uh, scale that you're looking at. Stepping back a touch, and, and perhaps Carter, I could bring you back in here. All of these models, the different approaches, the different fine-tuning that's going on, what do you see, broadly speaking, in terms of the projections from these models? Are they converging or diverging at this point? What, what's the picture look like? I guess it depends on exactly which set of questions you're talking about. In terms of, are we plateauing or peaking? Then exactly. There's some consistency there. Uh, alternatively, as far as like next steps, that's where a lot of the models that were useful in the early phase are no longer going to be useful because they, they're essentially just projecting up to the peak. And then we're going to get in, in a new policy environment. We're going to have new behavioral responses. And so we're going to need a new set of models. And so that a lot of those haven't really started rolling out. Obviously, RANS is out there. There are a handful of others that are out there that are looking at different most of the other models are looking primarily just at the epidemiological side. But, you know, in the first phase, you really need to focus on the epidemiology uh, because that's the, you know, you're trying to avoid the worst case. You're trying to avoid massive spread and, and a lot of death. In this phase, uh, we've mostly tackled that. And now we can, can focus on other aspects. And so you need both the epidemiological side and then economics uh, social issues and other things, and we just don't have a lot of models on that on that second half. So there's not there's not really agreement because there's not really a lot out there. Got it. 
Uh, and I heard Raf mention a number of these exact types of improvements that we are trying to work into our own model. Okay, let me ask a question about specific populations like nursing homes, prisons that might bear closer scrutiny with modeling. Uh, Raf, could you take that first? Yeah, so um, the population level models, these SEIR models that we've constructed are really uh, uh, suitable for at certain uh, scales, a city perhaps or a, a state, uh, not so suitable to model specific settings like a nursing home or prison or schools um, where we want to perhaps uh, have a, a more deeper understanding where uh, people are mixing with the same sort of people on uh, on a daily basis and there's not this uh, homogenous or this homogenous mixing is is uh that does not really apply and um so exactly if we wanted to look into uh, policies of uh specifically cutting down sizes of, of of classes in schools uh or or doing some kind of um diff different days allocated for uh, different students uh, to attend these require some kind of other types of models like the individual level models, uh, micro simulation models and agent based models. So, yes. Okay. And Carter, would you like to weigh in on that? Yeah, you know, there are certain populations like the, the elderly in nursing homes or in the incarcerated population where you have a, an isolated group or a, a tightly contained group. And the dynamics there are going to be different than the dynamics in a, the population as a whole. And so, You'll need a different model for that, particularly because the effect of COVID going running rampant in a nursing home is pretty high negative effect in terms of you've got lots of deaths, lots of cases in a very uh, tight period of time. And so models that treat everybody the same or that, that are you know fairly homogenous are not going to really capture that. And in particular, because there's a, there's a sort of spike in deaths that are associated with that, it's something that you should really pay attention to. Uh, and because there are specific policies that you might want to address and target towards those populations. And so you, you'll want a, a different model for something like that. Similarly, with things like testing and tracing, that's a, a policy arrangement or a policy type that you probably wouldn't want to use these models for. And you would want a specific, a specifically built model to address that kind of policy. And other types of interventions might require different policies. It really depends on how the policy is, is supposed to work. And, and affect the uh, effect change. And for sometimes the, the existing models will work very well for those. In other cases, you'll need special built models. It depends on the, on the situation. Okay, very good. Uh, Jeannie, what do you see as some lessons that uh, policymakers and modelers perhaps could be gleaning from all the data that's being gathered now? Yeah, you know, I think as as Carter was just talking about, um, there are limitations to the type of modeling that you can do quickly to inform decisions during the pandemic. Some of the more complicated models, um, like the agent-based models that can account for individual behavior, take much more time and, and data to build. And, and while some may be ready in time to inform sort of our current response, I think that they may be most useful in really helping us to prepare for the next pandemic. You know, for instance, these types of models could be built and used to address a number of sort of what if questions that will help us develop more effective response plans. So, you know, what if we'd left schools open longer? Or what if we'd had better testing capacity in place? They can generate, you know, all of these different scenarios based on the data from the entire sort of pandemic and all of the behavioral responses that we've observed and really be able to, to play out some different scenarios and, you know, how they would have affected the path of, of the pandemic. So I think that there's, 
you know, be a lot that we can learn by tracking all of this data and keeping it and building these more complicated models. And to the extent that they're available, you know, to inform the current response, great, but they're going to be particularly useful, I think, as we plan for, you know, another a pandemic um, and develop our response strategies. I think the other thing that I just want to point out is that, you know, because we there are just lots of what we would call as researchers sort of natural experiments taking place all over the country and around the world. And what that means is that, you know, jurisdictions are using different strategies at different times to address COVID-19. And what that does is just provide a rich set of data that will allow researchers to try to tease out the effects of different policies on disease outcomes. So I think all of the data we're collecting now and all of the information on policy changes and that sort of thing certainly has uses now, but is going to have use for a long time in terms of, you know, really trying to plan out better ways, more effective responses to these kinds of um, uh, infectious disease outbreaks. So that will all help next time. But as we start to wrap up this call, what, uh, what advice can we give to policymakers now? Carter, you've been dealing with policymakers directly here in Virginia. Do you have any suggestions about which models they should be looking at most closely or, or what else they should be doing to get to the best policy decisions? Yeah, I, I don't I wouldn't recommend looking at a single model. I think that you should look at lots of different models just because there, there is variation and different modelers are making different choices. And so uh, for some of these, if it's highly sensitive to one policy input or something like that, then you, you want to be aware of that. And the one way to do that is to look at lots of different models. I would say that policymakers should be looking at the models and should be trying to understand you know, what the policy implications are. Uh, at this point, it's kind of on the modelers to come up with a, the next sort of set of relevant analysis. I'd also encourage policymakers to be very wary of the quality of the different models and to make sure that, you know, to the extent that they, they can interpret them themselves or that they can bring on people that, that can help them uh, you know, interpret the models and figure out which ones are the ones they should be paying attention to. As we've seen, not all models are created equal, and, and uh, some of the models in particularly, in particular, have had some made some very poor recommendations uh, based on flawed analysis. And a lot of that, you, some of that you can know in advance just by looking at how they constructed the model. Some of it you don't know until after the fact, um, and, and it's really trying to avoid those those known uh, known knowns because there are going to be unknown unknowns out there and so make your make your decisions as best you can all right i think that is going to be a good place for us to wrap up thank you Jeannie, raf and carter this concludes our call have a nice day you too thank you this presentation is provided as a public service by the rand corporation visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries